Welcome to episode nine of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing the New Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Uh, I believe we may have touched on this before, but in Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, there is a special attention to the fact that along with the 12 disciples, there were women mentioned by name that accompanied Jesus. Is there a reason why this point was made? Yeah, I think one of the things we see with Jesus um, is that he gives a place and even a prominent place to women in his life and in his ministry, mm-hmm. right? So again, uh, just in the culture, uh, women would have been very behind the scenes. They would have been very overlooked. Uh, and yet Jesus takes time to care for uh, the woman with the issue of blood. Right. right. Like he stops from going to the synagogue ruler's house to care for his child in order to care for this unclean woman on the way. Mm-hmm. Right, and in this case, we see these other women who are very prominent, uh, and they are using their wealth to support the ministry that he and the disciples are, are having. Right, so they play a, a prominent role there. It's striking uh, that when Jesus is raised from the dead, who's the first people to see him? It's you know, oh, yeah. it's women. Right, and the fact that women are the first witnesses uh, is evidence to the reality of his resurrection mm-hmm. to the veracity, the truthfulness of the Gospels, because you were making up a story at that time, at that culture, you would not have had women as the first uh, witnesses right, of, yeah. of Christ. Right. So there is a valuable um, place in the life of Christ for, for women. Um, you know, again, we talked about before that when he chose the 12 um, disciples, he chose men, mm-hmm. um, because there remains in the household of God a spiritual leadership that is given to men to be the leaders and the teachers of God's people in the church now today. Mm-hmm. We see that in 1 Timothy uh, 2 and 3. But there is a robust place of ministry for women in the church. And you know, so our, our church and our beliefs is, is complementarian, uh, which is simply a mean that men and women are equal in value and they are complementary with one another in the different roles that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes that has overlooked uh, the value and the place uh, the women have in the church. And uh, so we certainly want to, to see that, affirm that, uh, and yet retain the, the distinctions that are good and godly uh, between men and women. God made, for lack of a better word, creation rules. Yeah. And it's, there seems to be a fight against those creation rules, whether it's um, with women or children or yeah. marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not any one particular area, just there's an attack on God's plan and his roles that he has given us um, as men, women, children, and just followers uh, of him. Yep. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, And we'll see this in 1 Timothy 2. Yeah. The fact that when Paul does not permit a woman to have authority or teach over men, uh, he grounds it not in anything cultural, but it goes back to Adam and Eve. Mm. Right? And Adam and Eve, before the fall, are given distinctive roles that are there. And one of the things we have to fight for is say, this is good, right? This is for your human flourishing, right? It's not as though women are in a place where all, the boys get to have all the fun. Right, yeah. And, and women have to stay back, right? No, like, actually, there are distinctive roles that are there that are for the human flourishing of men and women. Um, and perhaps men have not done a good enough job to esteem and to honor the place that women have mm. uh, in the home and in, their, and in the church right. and in the world. And so we need to affirm and to esteem that role, even while retaining there's a distinction that right. was built into creation by a good creator. Yep. 
Let's take a look at Luke 8, verses 19 through 21. It reads, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What did Jesus mean when he said, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it? Maybe a good way to answer that question is just to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Mm-hmm. Right? So a couple chapters later in Luke 12, um, beginning in verse 49, just kind of read the whole passage here. Luke 12, 49 says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a, baptize, a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's talking there about the, the cross that he's going to go to, this baptism of fire that he's going to undergo on the cross. Verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So for anyone who puts family values above Christ and the gospel, Mm -hmm. this passage like completely overturns that. Right. Like the only hope that we have for family values is actually what God is doing in creating a new family. Jesus didn't come to simply put a patch on the old wineskin. He says mm-hmm. that earlier. Uh, rather, uh, he's coming to create a whole new family. Right. He's not just coming to Israel to bring peace to the nation of Israel. Right. But rather, he's creating a new Israel. He's creating a new people from Jew and Gentile together. He's carving them out from many families throughout the earth. And they're going to be born, not by flesh, but by the Spirit. Right? So go back to the passage in, in Luke 8. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and do it. It's those who have faith. Mm-hmm. Right? Those who have faith are the ones who have evidence of the new birth, whose hearts have been circumcised. Not just their flesh, but their hearts have been circumcised. They've been given the Spirit of God. They have faith to believe. And they're evidencing the fact that these are the ones who are part of this new family that is being created in and through Jesus Christ. And at that time, uh, Jesus' brothers did not yet believe. Right. Right. So John 7 makes that abundantly clear. Um, but after his resurrection, his brothers, even James and Jude, mm-hmm. uh, will become even uh, you know, writers of Scripture. Right, yeah. But interestingly, they don't say, oh, and by the way, um, I am you know, a brother of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they address him as Lord. Wow. Right. So they are part of his uh, family, not in the fleshly sense, but in the eternal sense. No, that's amazing. I can't. Can you imagine that growing up in the house? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, sinful brothers that we are. I know yeah. I was. Yeah. Uh, you know, here's Jesus who is perfect. Mm-hmm. You can understand why they might be challenged by that. Right. And yet, God in His kindness opened their eyes to to see Him not just as a brother in the flesh, but as an elder brother who is their Savior as well. To be honest, if I had a perfect brother, I, I probably would have had some issues with him because okay. <laughs> he would have never gotten tra- <laughs> <laughs> right. Realistically, right. in my humanity, I can see that being an issue. Yeah, you can think of how many caricatures yeah. uh, that, that could provide us. How many things there. Yep. This next bit of scripture has several lines that I have heard quoted many times. I will be reading from Luke 9, verses 23 through 27. And I said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean when he says to deny ourselves is to take up our cross daily? We can be really misled by the way that crosses um, are seen today. Yeah. Right? People wear... Um, you know, crosses on the neck, mm-hmm. you know, one on t-shirts, you know, put all over the place. Tattoos. Uh, tattoos, yeah. yeah. But we need to remember that a cross was an instrument of death, mm-hmm. right? So to wear, to, to fully grasp what we're doing when we, you know, make jewelry pieces mm-hmm. out of the cross is to hang a, an electric chair around our neck. Right, yeah. Right? To hang a noose around our neck. I mean, it's that kind of executioning tool right, uh, yeah. that is there. Um, and so basically he's saying, you're going to come and die with me, right? To follow Christ means that you die to yourself, you die in your sin, you die with me, and yet have hope, you also have my life, right? So we read from Luke 10, this idea of Christ going to the cross and speaks of it as a baptism, right? Discipleship is a baptism where we have died with Christ and been raised with him. That's one of the reasons why in our baptism, our water baptism, the symbolism of that is burial mm-hmm. and resurrection. Yeah. Right? It portrays this is how you enter into relationship with Christ. We can talk about the fact that it's by faith and repentance, but saving faith is a faith that is dying to self and then living in Christ. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's what he's really getting at there. Verse 27 says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. How should we understand this? Yeah, it's one of those things where if we keep reading, I think we read right into the answer. Mm -hmm. Right. So verse 28 continues and says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, right? So um, this is known as the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, just kind of a smoke and mirrors that are bringing light upon him, but we see the very glory of God in the face of Christ, mm-hmm. right? And either this is the glory that is veiled by his humanity, or it is the glorified humanity that he will have in the age to come. Uh, certainly it seems as though that is taking place here that who Christ is and the vision we see of him like in the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. right, as he is in glory, like this is what they get a preview of. Right. So that's why I think when he says in verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here, right? He's speaking literally to them, you, yeah. to them uh, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so, again, what is the kingdom of God? Well, it is Christ, mm-hmm. right? Where Christ is, is where the kingdom is. Wow. And because... Christ has come, and in fact, we'll talk about this next week, Luke 17, mm-hmm. right? He says, the kingdom is in your midst, which is a far better translation than often of the kingdom of God is within you. Mm-hmm. No, the kingdom's not within you. The king is in your midst, mm-hmm. right? And so therefore, they see the glory of this king, the glory of the kingdom. And he's talking here with Moses and Elijah, you know, symbolizing perhaps the law and the prophets who are preparing the way for Jesus to come. Notice what they're talking about. They're talking about the Exodus, right? Because verse 31 says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which is the word exodon, or mm. exodus, right? Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Both Moses and Elijah had experiences of the Exodus, right? right Moses yeah. 
certainly leading the people out of his, out of Egypt through the Exodus. But Elijah also went through the waters of the Jordan River, right? right? Which is what Jesus did as he entered into the land. Elijah was doing something that was Exodus-like in that way. He had signs and wonders as well at that time. Mm-hmm. Jesus now comes, and he is the fulfillment of all that they were prophesying before, right? And this Exodus is not a, uh, a geographical Exodus from one plot of ground to another, but rather it is from death to life, mm. right? It is from this fallen age and this fallen world into a new age and a new kingdom that is to come, and Jesus, by means of his death and resurrection, is going to accomplish that. So what should we take away from the transfiguration, and how does this apply to us today? I think, first of all, it is, uh, again, if we just read it in context, it's an event that took place in the life of Peter, James, and John. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not something that we should be trying to experience personally for ourselves today. Right. Right. So... Um, it's a historic event that was important for revealing who Jesus Christ is. We just remember, what are the purposes of the four Gospels? They're to tell us who Jesus is according to the eyewitnesses that are there. They're not giving us a model for us to repeat in our own lives. Right. In fact, one of the ways we know this is that when Peter is coming to the end of his life in Second Peter, second letter that he writes, he talks about this event in the Transfiguration. And the voice that they hear, which we read, is saying, you know, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Mm-hmm. And Peter says that you actually have a more certain word. And that more certain word is the Old Testament prophets. Right. Right. So it's an amazing testimony. Peter is not looking for a papal successor. Mm-hmm. He's not looking for another apostle after him to say, this is the one you listen to. But rather, when Peter is going to go to glory, he points back to the Old Testament and says, what you have in the Old Testament is sufficient and certain because the Holy Spirit is speaking through that for you to have faith in the risen Christ, mm-hmm. right? So I think the transfiguration for us is an important historical event who teaches us who Jesus is as the, um, the glorious Son of God, veiled with his humanity, now revealed in the glory of his resurrection exaltation. Uh, but this is not for us to repeat right. as much as to listen and to learn and to worship the God who gives us these scriptures. Uh, in Luke 10, we find another interesting passage about Satan. It reads, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. How should we be understanding this? So again, uh, the unique position that the disciples have Mm. is important here, right? So they have a unique place in salvation history. Right. right? Jesus will say to them, you know, many prophets long to see what you see, Mm -hmm. right? And now they see these things. And Jesus, as they're returning back, and this is the disciples, it's not just the twelve, they're returning back from uh, going out and proclaiming the gospel, seeing healing take place, and even demons being exercised. Um, They have a unique place in seeing this transition from the old age to the new, Mm -hmm. right? The whole sense of the gospels is at this shifting point of redemptive history where it's transferring the old ways are passing away, the new ways of Christ are coming. So see that here. It's striking this number 70, right? Earlier in chapter 9, we see that 12 apostles have been sent out, but now it's 70, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe we remember when we read Genesis chapter 10, 
probably most of us did not count the number of names or the number of nations that are there in that genealogy that are there. Right. But if you did, you would find it's the number 70. Oh, wow. Right? Uh, and that number 70 has a key role, I think, in placing this outreach to not just the Jews, 12, but to the Gentiles, 70, to mm. the nations, right? Uh, this is one of the themes in Luke's gospel and then into Acts, that the gospel is coming to Israel first, and then it's going to the nations, right? We'll see that more in the book of Acts. But here it seems that this idea of the 70 has something to do with um, disciples going to the nations. It's in and around Galilee, which is known as Galilee of the nations, right? right? So there just seems to be this outward thrust that is going on. And the serpents and the scorpions, the authority that they have over them, so this would probably be symbolic for demonic spirits or mm -hmm. Satan himself. And so if there's a sense of the 70 going to the nations, having authority over these demonic spirits, um, and then Jesus says, I saw, or maybe I was watching, the, the verb tense there is imperfect, I was watching Satan fall from heaven. I think what's taking place at this time between the Old New Testament is that there's something taking shape where the authority that Satan with his uh, hordes of demonic spirits had before is being lost, mm -hmm. right? Because we know that in the Old Testament, even the way it's described in the New, is that he's the God of this age. He's the ruler of this place. He is um, the ruler of this world. Like those were things that Satan stole for himself away from humanity. Right. But now that Christ is going to receive authority over heaven and earth, He's going to be the rightful possessor of the earth and of heaven as well. And he's going to have authority over Satan. But he has to do that through his humanity, not just his divine nature. Right. Right. So Satan's place in the world is being thrown down. And because Satan's place in the world is being thrown down, now the gospel is going to be able to go to the nations, going to be able to go to the ends of the earth. And yet, he also tells his disciples don't be proud about this, mm -hmm. right? He ultimately says, take heart and rejoice that your names are in the book of life, right? That's what matters most. So I think there's just great practical application for us that if God perhaps gives us success in, in gospel ministry, we see people coming to faith in Christ, there is a way in which you know we can rejoice in that but not over and above our relationship with him. Right. Like ultimately our identity is found in Christ, not in our ministry. Right. It's not found in the power that we may have to understand the word or to explain it to others, but ultimately we are humble children who are identified with our Father in heaven by the name that is found in this book of life. In Luke 11, we find the Lord's Prayer. Is the Lord's Prayer the only prayer that we should pray after all, it is the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, some have even wanted to rename it and call it the Disciples' Prayer. Right. Right. Because Jesus is teaching us how to pray mm -hmm. in that. Um, it's not the only prayer that we should pray. Mm -hmm. We have 150 Psalms. They're yeah. a pretty good place uh, to pray as well. Uh, but it does teach us a pattern of how to pray. Mm -hmm. um, so in comparison, Luke 11 is a little bit shorter uh, than Matthew 6. Mm -hmm. Um both of them recount these words, you know, our Father, heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. All right. So it's, it's teaching us how to prioritize the things of God, right? To come before him and to seek his will, to seek his glory, and then to entrust ourselves to him for the needs that we have, uh, both our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs, right? right? That we would, our sins would be forgiven as he has forgiven us. Um, so these are certainly ways that we ought to pray. It can be a great model for how we pray. 
Uh, one thing that we often miss, though, is we uh, so quickly take these Lord's prayers and individualize them. But if you notice, our Father, who art in heaven, how would be thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Right. Those are corporate prayers. Yeah. This is what the people of God corporately should be praying, not just individuals taking that. doesn't mean an individual can't pray it. Right. But as an individual prays it, they should be reminded of the fact that they are not isolated in their relationship with God, but they're one of a people uh, that even the Lord's Prayer can then teach us how to pray for others too. Wow. In Luke 12, uh, I'm going to have a couple questions from Luke 12. First, in Luke 12, verses 8 through 9, it says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Is it possible that we can deny God not only with our words, but our actions? For example, if we support people or ideologies that are unquestionably in opposition to Christ because it gives us some kind of gain or in the natural, could that be willingly denying Christ? Absolutely. Yeah. And it doesn't just even have to be kind of on a, a larger scale, right? Mm-hmm. Of supporting different ideologies or political. It's just in our homes. Yeah. Right? If we're if we're inconsistent between our, our words and our actions, then those closest to us are going to see how oh, there's some there's a disconnect between what you say and who you are. Mm-hmm. Right? It certainly doesn't mean that we are, are perfect. Right. right? Yeah. What we say and speak of Christ is always going to be greater than how we live. Mm-hmm. But if we are honest with ourselves and honest with others, like we are people who are identified by our repentance, mm-hmm. are identified by our confession that I have failed. Not with our perfection, right. but rather with the perfect Savior who I continue to need and continue to attempt to walk in His way by the power of the Spirit that He gives uh, to us. Uh, so certainly our actions are either going to bear witness to the faith that we profess or they're going to uh, witness against mm-hmm. the faith that we profess. The other question in Luke 12 comes at the end of the chapter, verses 47 through 48. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of much of him will be required. And from him to whom they trusted much, they will demand more. What does this teach us about judgment? Are there different punishments for different people? Yeah, so just the whole context here, Jesus is talking to the disciples about being ready for the last day, right? For the judgment that is going to come. And he tells this parable beginning in verse 41. And he describes this household and, you know, the, the stewards who are in this household and some who are faithful and some who are not. Um, and he says that the unfaithful one who is beating others uh, knowingly mm-hmm. is going to have a greater judgment uh, than those who do these things unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think there is a, a you know, reality that the punishment um, that God gives to those outside of Christ, those who do not profess faith, those who are not believers at the end of the age, that judgment will be based upon their works in the body, mm-hmm. right? And there are some that will receive a more severe judgment than others. And it may not be, at least according to this, based upon um, just the wickedness that they do, but also based upon what they know, Mm. right? The fact that those who have greater light given to them and have rejected that and have rebelled against that will have a greater punishment than those who perhaps 
never heard the gospel. Right. Right. Uh, again, we believe from the scriptures that um, common grace, or maybe I should say general revelation. So we believe that general revelation is given in creation to all people. And Paul will speak about this in Romans 1 and 2, that that general revelation is sufficient for judgment. And because all people who are in Adam rebelled against God, they are condemned under that first covenant and under the law. Um, but uh, only the gospel, only special revelation gives salvation. It's not as though the Spirit is at work without the name of Christ. Right. Or that salvation comes apart from the gospel. This is why we have to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But those who have not received that knowledge... Those who have not rejected that knowledge may receive a punishment that is less than those who live in America mm. where the gospel message is so prevalent mm -hmm. that those who have turned their back on that and the light that is available to them will experience a greater judgment because of that. Wow. For our last question of today, let's look at Luke 13, 1-5. It reads, there was some present at the, at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What can we learn from this? There are lots of things I think we can learn from this. Um, you know, one of the things that Jesus may be doing as he's talking about these locations is getting at the prejudice that some have in their hearts mm -hmm. where they think that they're greater than others mm -hmm. because of who they are and where they live. Right. Right. So he's addressing that. Um, and certainly these disasters that took place, it'd be tempting for them to say, yeah, this came upon them because of their sinfulness mm. and then exonerating themselves because of who they are and where they live, right? Like after um, Hurricane Katrina, mm. right? Uh, there were some Christian leaders who basically said because of Sin City, this is why that hurricane came and devastated that city. Same thing happened in Haiti. Yeah. They said the same that's thing. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's like, we know this. We know that the entire world is under uh, the threat of God's judgment, mm -hmm. right? Job 37 talks about that. All the things that take place in the natural realm are for love or correction or for the land, mm -hmm. right? So we can say, yeah, there's nothing that is accidental going on in the world. But we do not have the revelation of God to make an interpretation on why these things happen the way that they did. Right, yeah. Right? And what Jesus is teaching us here is that when we see disasters taking place in the world, it should cause us to bow our knee in repentance before him, mm -hmm. right? Not pointing the finger at others. And certainly not thinking that we're better than others because we're still standing and they have fallen. But rather, as they have fallen, as others have suffered, and the calamities that they have faced, that we too would be humbled by that. And that our hearts would be moved towards repentance based upon these judgments, which remind us this whole world is shaking. And there will come a day when all the earth will be shaken and nothing will stand right. except for those who have trusted in Christ and the kingdom that he is going to establish on that last day. Uh, so I think this just really gets at the heart. People, I mean, we have an access to, to news today that is far greater than any other period of time. Yeah. In fact, it's probably too great for us to even be able to handle mm -hmm. because we think we have to do something about all of it or we become numb to all of it. Right. Um, but Jesus uses these words, or Spirit can use these words to teach us how we are to respond in faith and repentance uh, to the tragedies that we see throughout the world. 
This concludes our discussion of the New Testament portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with your reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.